Good morning, church. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it to page 98. Uh, we're going to open up in Exodus 20 again. Exodus chapter 20. It's page 98 in the brown Bibles, which um, are on the table at the back. If you, do, if you need one, don't have one, also you're welcome to take one home. Again, we limit it to one per person. Um, but if you need a Bible, you're very welcome to take one of these home with you. Um, as you, most of you are aware, we've been doing a series, and uh, we've been working through the Ten Commandments, and I want to pick up, I'll just read the, f- the first uh, couple of verses of Exodus 20, and then we're going to jump down to the Sixth Commandment, which is verse 13. So it begins like this, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now we're committed to um, what we call a kind of expository style of preaching as in general, which means that you, you take a chunk of the Bible and you work your way through it. Depending on the type of literature you're dealing with, you work through it at different pace. So sometimes with looking at narrative stories, you take a big chunk, you read a whole story and then you open up what it's about. But occasionally you reach a passage like this where you have to go slowly And it creates a particular challenge for the preacher. You know, it'd be a lot easier in some ways if I could just talk about whatever I felt like on any given Sunday. But I think a lot of you would stop coming um, because my opinions are not that weighty. But when you're committed to just kind of walking through the Word of God, you start to hear God speak in a real, in a penetrating way. And you hear the authoritative voice of God into your heart because it's not... It's not me bringing my thoughts to the text, it's rather the the text bringing uh, the Word of God to us by the power of the Spirit, which is why we we do this. But it creates a certain challenge when you reach a verse like verse 13, which um, in the original is only two words uh, in the Hebrew, just lo ratzak, don't kill, don't murder. And it creates a particular challenge for many reasons, Um, not least because you think, well, how much can you say about two words? And uh, also, the problem with this particular command of all the ones in the Ten Commandments is that, is that I think a lot of people would just feel, of everything that's listed here, this is, this is the one we can have the most agreement on, okay? And it's the most obvious. Some of these, maybe you're not so sure about, you think we could maybe do without. Um, I think that some of you, particularly if you're not coming from a believing background, if you're not a Christian, you might, you might question why some of these made the top ten like, um, of God's commandments, things like keeping the Sabbath day holy, or not coveting, um, not having kind of a desire for your neighbor's goods, um, which will come up later. But this one, this one you think, surely of all the commands, we can all agree on this. So what is there to say about it? And actually, I think part of the reason why um, we struggle to see, see the weight of it is because actually we've, we've, we've not learned to think correctly. And um, what I mean by that is that many of us might assume that, that murder is wrong without being able to articulate particularly clearly a reason for that. Especially, I think, if you are coming from a point of view where you don't necessarily believe in God. As I tried to show you, I think it might be quite difficult for you to make a strong case for why, why this is important. And uh, not only that, but you look at our society at large, and you think, in many ways, we're pushing the boundaries of this, this particular command, in, in all kinds of ways. And uh, many kind of ethical issues that have come to the surface in the last... Uh, a few decades and are coming to the surface even now, which we need to speak into a little bit. And not only that, there are, there are elements to this command which actually can change the direction of your whole life. 
There's a weight to it, and the heart behind it, the principle that's at the core of what this command is about, which can actually alter your, your whole purpose in life. So what I want to do, I want to walk through with you down three successive layers of meaning of what God is speaking to us about here. We'll start really at probably the most surface level. Um, the simplest way of understanding it, which is to begin with the negative. What is this command against? And we need to be really clear on what is meant here in the original. What does it actually mean when God says, you shall not murder? It doesn't mean, for one thing, you shan't kill. The old translations uh, translated it kill, and it led to a lot of confusion over, over the years, um, because you naturally read that, and a lot of people think, therefore, that the Bible's against all forms of killing in every circumstance. And that's actually not true. It's not about war. You know, when uh, the Bible speaks about killing in war, it uses a different word to the word that's used here. And uh, some people have taken this verse to lead them into a pacifist idea, the idea that um, all violence is always wrong. I'm not convinced by that perspective, but I think it can certainly uh, narrow down our view of what's, what is right. And we may find ourselves a little bit trigger happy in this day and age. It's also, to be clear, not the word that's used about killing animals in the Bible. Um, that needs to be stated because I think these days the killing of animals has been elevated almost to exactly the same level ethically as, as killing humans. And that actually unveils a whole worldview of, um, of, of really confusion that lies behind the moral weight of the command. And I think it's important just to be a bit clear. The Bible is actually incredibly um, clear on the reasons why we should treat animal life with an enormous amount of respect, but it never describes the killing of animals as murder or uses the word that's used here. Now, here's one thing that might surprise you. The word does mean manslaughter, as well as how we would translate it as murder. There's a number of examples used in the Old Testament. Um, despite my appearance, I have never actually cut a tree down with an axe. Uh, it's kind of a lumberjack chic, isn't it, I suppose? But I've never actually chopped a tree down with an axe. But the Bible says, if you go down to chop a tree down with an axe, and the axe head flies off as you're swinging the axe, and uh, it, it hits somebody and, and kills them, then what you're guilty of is ratzak, the same word that's in this translation. You think, well, how can that be morally equivalent with murder? And the Bible... Um, gives a number of these examples of the kinds of ways that you could unintentionally, but um, perhaps with carelessness, take a life or, or, or create circumstances in which lives are taken. And the reason why the Bible's quite strong on this, and really it's the root and the fountain of a lot of our kind of um, our health and safety laws, believe it or not. And the Brits are famed for them. We have health and safety laws for everything. But in a way, it all began with the, the morality of the scriptures, and it has to do with the preciousness of life. And whether you carry life as a precious thing, whether you consider human life to be a very precious thing. Because carelessness is, is inexcusable in this regard. And so this is what the word means. Now, here's a couple of vital truths that are going to undergird everything that we want to talk about this morning. That really kind of uh, form a foundation to this command. The first is that life is a gift. Life is a gift. And I think that's easy for us in this day and age to forget because we are told 
every day or certainly it's seeped into our consciousness that life is an accident. And that because it's an accident on this planet, there could be, it could happen again or it could have happened elsewhere. The Bible emphatically says that isn't true. Life is not an accident. It takes an incredible leap of faith to believe that it is when you understand the complexity of life. Accidents don't cause complexity. They cause destruction. But when you consider the size of the universe, a little Wikipedia-ing told me that it is the observable universe is 91 billion light years across, which means that if you are traveling at the speed of light, which is only possible in Star Trek and Star Wars, but if you are traveling at the speed of light, it would still take you 91 billion years to get across from one side to the other. And none, no life has been detected anywhere except here on this planet. So life is a miracle. It's a gift. It's extraordinary. It must never be uh, regarded lightly. Life is a gift. But the other part of this, the other foundation, the other plank, which is so crucial to understanding what God is saying to us here, is that human life has its value, its particular, peculiar, extraordinary value, because we are made in the image of God. In Genesis, after God wipes out so much life in the flood as an act of judgment. When the earth is about to be rebuilt, God lays down a couple of commands to Noah, and one of them, the most, one of the highest commands is this. He says, um, For your lifeblood I'll require reckoning. From every beast I'll require it, and from man. From his fellow man I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It's a kind of eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth command. If you take life, your life should be taken. It's a capital punishment uh, doctrine. And then he says, concludes it like this. For God made man in his own image. The beauty and uniqueness of human life is founded on this idea that you were made in the image of God. Now, think about this for a moment. A lot of us would have come into this room thinking, well, we just naturally assume that this is the most obvious of all the commands. But you take away the Christian content behind the command, what are you left with? If you don't believe that life is a gift and you don't believe that human life particularly is made in the image of God, what are you left with? And I think, actually, if you, if you think about it, there's very little to suggest to you that taking life is wrong. If you just look at nature, if you just are taught uh, by common sense, why would you assume this in the first place? Why is it so obvious? The world itself is full of violence. Extraordinary amounts of violence. And I don't just mean among humans. You look at the animal kingdom. The world is built on, it seems, the killing and taking of life. So why would we assume it's wrong? It seems rather to be weaved into the very fabric of nature. Any of you seen one of those documentaries where they track troops of chimpanzees roving through the jungles? I remember watching one of these when we were young and seeing how some older chimpanzees started ripping apart a baby chimpanzee limb from limb. And it's gruesome, isn't it? And um, my younger brother literally wept and um, we had to console him. And it's very sad. It's quite actually heart-rending to watch this kind of stuff. I was just reading recently how 
There was a, a primatologist called Jane Goodall who worked in the 1970s who did a lot of research, first-hand research into chimpanzees. And initially, she could not believe her eyes as she watched the way they behaved and the ways that they were so brutally violent against one another. So much so that she hesitated to publish anything of what she discovered. And even when she did publish it, she didn't, uh, people didn't believe it. They thought, this can't be right. This can't be true. And so here's a... Um, Apart from her writing, she says, Often when I awoke in the night, she wrote, Horrific pictures sprang unbidden to my mind. Satan, seems an appropriate name for one of the chimpanzees, a long-observed chimp, cupping his hand below Sniff's chin to drink the blood that welled from a great wound in his face. Jomeo tearing a strip of skin from Day's thigh. Feigen charging and hitting again and again the stricken, quivering body of Goliath, one of his childhood heroes. And he opens up that... She opened up all this, this world, the violence that lies in nature, that lies behind what's going on and behind the veil. And you think, well, if nature is that violent, why do we think that, that, that violence is wrong? Why do we assume that that's the case? I was trying to do a little bit of preparation for this message. It's, it's been one that's been just pinging around in my mind all week because of the challenge of trying to say the right things today. And uh, figuring out what's important to say to you. And I was sat on the bus with a little notepad open and a pen, desperately trying to write down an illegible handwriting as I was shaking around. And then I overheard a guy um, on the bus behind me, a slightly dodgy looking fella, big guy, on the phone to his friend. And I could only hear his side of the conversation. But he was offering him this advice. He said, follow the geezer in the toilet and stick one on him, you know. Just stick one on him. I had no idea what this meant. Uh, I thought, is he, is he advising him to kill his friend? What exactly is he, is he going on here? And it wasn't until the guy got off the bus that one of the fellow passengers turned to me and said, well, it just means to beat somebody up. We got talking about it. And um, I thought, wow, the violence is, is only just below the surface, isn't it? Even among, among people. I was reading also, just by coincidence, some of the murder rates. It just, in, in one of the books I was reading this week, it just came up and across the world and how in the UK we're pretty well off. It's one in a hundred thousand, um, the murder rate in the UK. But in America, it's four or five times higher. And then in Honduras, it's 90 times higher. And in some recent recorded people groups, it's been as high as a thousand or 1500 per hundred thousand, which just to put that in perspective means that there very likely be some of you who would have been killed in those particular societies, and every one of us would have known somebody who'd been murdered by somebody else. And you think, if this is the way we're kind of wired, if this is what naturally uh, we are capable of, and if this is built into the fabric of nature, why on earth would you assume that it's obvious that killing is wrong? Uh, one of the most challenging books I read last year was this book, Sapiens, by um, Yuval Harari. He's an atheist. But he's one of those atheists who's very consistent and honest with his point of view. And that he is very frank about the fact that morality does not exist in an atheistic universe. He talks about things like human rights. He says they are, and he cites, the, for example, the, um, the, the U.S. Constitution, which says something down this, or the Declaration of Independence, which says that all men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he says, basically, all of that's rubbish if there's no God. He says, according to biology, people were not created, they have evolved, and they certainly did not evolve to be equal. 
the idea of equality is inextricably intertwined with the idea of creation. He says, and he goes on, he says, there's no such thing as rights in biology. And he concludes with this little quote from Voltaire, who said, there is no God, but don't tell that to my servant, lest he murder me at night. <laughs> Voltaire was being intellectually consistent there. If there's no God, then there are no moral objecti- um, objective moral- morals. And if there are no objective mora- morality, then what is to say that anything is right or wrong? It's just a, a gut instinct, isn't it, that we go on, or a kind of communal agreement. The world does not teach us that murder is wrong. And if you take away the Christian foundation for that belief, then actually you're left with a shell of opinion, an empty opinion. And I want to speak quite directly into this now, friends. There is one supreme example of our collective capacity in our country to, to take life in our day and age, and it's the example of abortion. I don't know how it came about that this was viewed by, as a choice issue, as though there is a moral equivalence between taking a life and having personal choice. And choice is what you do every morning when you decide what to put on when you get dressed or what breakfast cereal you're going to eat. There's no moral equivalence, is there, between personal choice and taking a life. Taking a life should never be part of personal choice. And I know that in making a statement like that, I'm kind of begging the question, because a lot of people would dispute whether you're taking a life when you, when you have an abortion, when, the, when a pregnancy is terminated. And friends, you need to think about this for a moment very carefully. In our day and age, we go to science for all our answers, don't we? But ask yourself, is it possible to go for science on this question of whether taking the life of a fetus or a baby in the womb is morally unacceptable? Science can only tell you that what is in the womb is alive, and it unquestionably is. But what it cannot tell you is whether that life has value and whether that life is a person. Science can only answer certain questions, but it can go no further. Science can't adjudicate on morality at all, actually. We have to go to other places to figure out whether this is a moral issue or not. So the question is whether a child conceived in the womb is a person. And the Bible is emphatically clear on this. The Bible says things like this. In Psalm 139, the psalmist is, David is saying this. He says to God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, in other words, my body, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Well, where was that? It was in his mother's womb. Intricately woven, he says, in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In Judges 13, when God speaks to 
an Israelite man and woman and calls them to have a child and dedicate him to be a Nazarite, one of those special kind of elite uh, people who would be dedicated to God, and his name would be Samson. God says, Be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Not from birth, not from 21 weeks, not from 24 weeks, but from the womb. If God can have a purpose for a child that hasn't even yet been conceived and can write out the days of that, of that person, as David says in Psalm 139, then doesn't it follow that that is a person? In Luke chapter 1, we read the story of Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus. And she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, who's about six months older. And as she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, what we're told is that the baby leaped in her womb. And then she tells Mary, she says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And Elizabeth is saying that the Holy Spirit was touching that child even before that child was conscious of anything. So that child has personhood from the womb. Elizabeth's baby who had become John the Baptist. The Bible's so clear on this. And I think, without exception, every one of us, if we look inside, we'll, we'll see that there is, we know this anyway. And that there are massive inconsistencies in the way we talk around this issue in our culture today. When somebody comes to you and says, I'm pregnant, the normal response is to celebrate the gift of a baby. When that baby is lost through miscarriage, and that happened to us the first time that C got pregnant, it was actually only one month before she got pregnant with, with Seth, but we had a, a miscarriage very early on. And when that happens, at any stage, whether it's four weeks, five weeks, 20 weeks, 39 weeks, you grieve with the mother who grieves for her child that's lost. At no point do you say, oh, how sad that a fetus was discarded from your body or something as callous as that. And yet when children are aborted, we don't use the language that's used in miscarriage of a baby being lost. We speak about a fetus being terminated Friends, I don't think that's particularly honest. I think it's very dishonest, actually. I think it's doublespeak. I think we use euphemisms because it makes the unthinkable become a little bit more bearable. And I know you're, maybe some of you are asking, well, am I saying that this is murder? And... In a sense, yes, I am. And the reason I'm doing that is because I'm saying that words matter. And euphemisms lead to tragic circumstances. When the Nazis wanted to deal with the Jewish population, 
They spoke in euphemistic language about the final solution to the Jewish question. They didn't make it publicly known that the solution was to gas men, women, and children. And I I wonder how many of you have been touched by this issue in your life. What if you've had an abortion? What if you've been involved with somebody who has? Maybe given them poor counsel. Maybe you got someone pregnant and they had an abortion. Maybe you've been a medic who's been involved in the procedures around abortion. What do you do when you can face yourself in the mirror and actually own up to what this is? My first counsel to you, friend, is that you must not minimize the sin. When Cain killed his brother Abel, the first murder in the Bible, God challenges Cain. And what God says to him, he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God is speaking as one who sees everything, who hears everything, and for whom justice must reign supreme. And when he sees the blood of Abel spilled on the ground, that blood cries out for justice against his brother who shed it. And I think the first thing that we have to do when we recognize that what we've done is something evil and something wicked is we must not minimize it or use language that covers it up. We need to call it what it is and own up to it before the living God. I don't think there's any hope for you if you can't do that. But I also want to point you to something else in the Bible. There's one more time that the Bible mentions Abel and his blood. And it's when it's speaking about the death of Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the priest who, who mediates a new relationship between us and God. And it, says, and it speaks of his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Whereas Abel's blood called for justice and for judgment on the guilty party, Christ's innocent blood spilled into the earth calls out to the Father that forgiveness must be given because atonement has been paid for the sins of the world. And I take great comfort from that in my own sin. I know that Christ's blood is calling out to the Father for mercy over my life. In 1 Timothy, Paul talks about his life without God. And he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. 
And you cannot forget that when he wrote that, he wrote it with the memory of Christians that he'd seen killed under his watch. Particularly Stephen. In the book of Acts, when Stephen is murdered, there's a throwaway line, our first introduction to Paul who wrote these words, that he was stood there giving approval to his death. He was pleased to see Stephen die. It's only a short while later that Jesus confronts him in a vision and and he turns around completely. Can you imagine how his conscience must have wrestled with the death of Stephen and how Stephen's face must have been emblazoned in his memory for life, I suspect. And I think that in no small part that must have given him energy for his missionary zeal. That in the sense that he could never forget that Christ had forgiven him of the worst kinds of sins so, and turned him into a missionary for the gospel. And friend, I said it's important if this is in your life, if this has touched your life, that you do not minimize it or shrink it down to something lesser than it is. But the other side is that you must run to the cross because it's only through Christ that you can accept forgiveness for what you've done wrong. But when you've been forgiven... It is as though it has never happened. And besides, the Bible's clear on this, that none of us are innocent when it comes to this particular sin. When Jesus gave his divine exposition of this law in Matthew's gospel, and he said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. His next line was, But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus was showing us, not that anger is always wrong. Jesus himself got angry. And Paul said, be angry but do not sin. So there's a difference between anger and sin. But rather that there is a murderous anger, a hatred despising of another person and of their life, which in God's eyes is morally equivalent to murder itself, and of which I suspect none of us are innocent. In Jeremiah 17, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's never more deceitful, is it, the heart, than when it tells you you're innocent when you're not. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is how the scriptures weigh down upon us. And cast us down on our faces to recognize the full weight of the sin that has lived in in these hearts, these blackened hearts. Not so that we will remain there, but so that we will turn to God and beg for his forgiveness. And recognize our moral bankruptcy. This is the beauty of Christianity. It doesn't turn you into a prideful, religious zealot who's self-righteous and aware of your own goodness before God. It does the very opposite. The word of God searches the corners of your heart and uncovers all the deception and lies that live in there. And then tells you, you need Jesus. You need someone whose blood is mightier than your sin. You need someone whose death can cover over your sin completely. 
And all you have to do to experience that forgiveness is turn to him in a moment, in an instant. Because as soon as you receive the grace of Christ, his forgiving love, nothing can snatch you from God's hand. Friends, I want to move slightly more rapidly through some of the other elements of what this command is about. But I'm, I think it's important that that sinks into your heart and that some of you have dealings with God today. So far, I've just looked at the command through the negative lens of what it's against. But there is also a way in which you have to look at these positively. What does it mean when God says don't murder? And the answer is that for the Christian, we are called to be for life. This command actually is at the root of what the Christian believes about justice in the world, about equality, about charity, about kindness. And all of these spring from the the preciousness of human life. And friends, the first way I want you to understand this is for yourself, that your life is precious. Which life are you most responsible for? The answer is clearly your own. And yet so often we abuse our own lives and live in a place of self-loathing. When in the 1600s, some of the great theologians called the Puritans were writing about this command, this is one of the ways they applied it. They said that to obey this is to develop quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, which is medicine, sleep, work, and recreations. You think, what does that have to do with not murdering? It doesn't seem to naturally follow. But what they understood was at the heart, the essence of this command is the preciousness of life, and your life is the most precious one that you must look after to begin with. And that part of looking after your life is, is treating yourself with the kind of respect which reflects how God values it. You think, what does cheerfulness have to do with keeping this command? And the answer is that they understood even then as has become obvious in recent medicine, what the proverb says, that a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So one of the most important ways you can keep God's command here is by cherishing your own life and developing joy in God. I read recently how most people, when they're given medicine to look after them, you know, for treatment of their sickness fail to take it, fail to take it properly and fail to take it consistently and fail to take it to the end of the course. And in fact, it's been proven many times that we are better at giving our pets medicine than we are giving ourselves. So you take better care of your dog than you do for your own life. And you ask, why is this the case? And one answer is that there's so much shame and so much self-loathing in people. How do we deal with that? I don't think the answer is to go to therapy to learn to love yourself. I think the answer has far more to do with going to God in repentance for not cherishing the gift of life that he gave you, but then experiencing his love shed abroad on your heart, which gives you a greater sense of the worth of your life than anything you could tell yourself. But the direction of this command positively is not only about how your life is precious, it's also about how the lives of everyone around us are precious. 
And this command, when it's understood rightly, should change your posture towards the world. It obliges us to seek human flourishing. You ask why? Why is that point of view so embedded in Western culture that we seek the good of humanity? Because I, I can tell you from, one, from my travels that this isn't true all around the world. You only have to experience roads or in different countries to know quickly that human life is not valued the same everywhere. Drive in Malaysia, and you know you're at risk every time you go on the road because ro- rules on the road are a suggestion rather than a command. But that has n- that, there's no comparison between Malaysia and Nepal. I went to Nepal um, probably 15 years ago, and in Nepal, you can be driving around these, ma- these roads that, that are on the edge of Himalayan mountains, and you'll, you'll turn a corner with no fence and a massive precipice to one side and see two trucks driving towards you side by side, occupying the entire width of the road as one tries desperately to overtake the other, but they're driving 1960s trucks that have no thrust or power to them. And at that moment, your heart goes into your mouth. But even driving in Nepal has no comparison to driving in India. I rode a motorbike in Mumbai in India, and um, the roads are the slippiest roads you've ever seen in your life. And honestly, I was, I was afraid when I was on that motorbike. But even driving in Mumbai has no comparison to driving in Lebanon. Lebanon is another level altogether, friends. We went on a particular highway out of uh, Beirut. I wasn't driving, and a confident Irish driver uh, at the wheel. We went on a particular highway out of Beirut. And this road, for one thing, it went wider and narrower for no apparent reason. Sometimes it was as wide as an eight-lane motorway, and sometimes it was as narrow as a two-lane road, and there were no road markings on the road either, and it was winding up and down through the hills. And when it was an eight-lane motorway, the Lebanese used all eight lanes. There were, there, there were no lanes, but not always in a logical way. So you'd be, you'd be driving along, and you'd see seven cars abreast coming towards you, side by side, leaving you only the smallest gap on your side to get through. You get past them and then you quickly find other cars accumulating next to you and realize that the, you had to somehow give way. And it was, like, it was an experience like none have ever had. And I was so thankful to God that I made it to the end of that journey because my wife was in, in the van with me. And it, it was honestly, it was the scariest thing I've ever seen on the road in my life. And that is just normal in Lebanon. And you ask, why is this the case? Why is it the case that all around the world, In this way, anyway, human life is cheap. And it has a lot to do with worldview, doesn't it? You probably read the statistics that in Qatar, preparing for the World Cup, at least 1,200 people have died in the construction of the World Cup stadiums. Probably many more, mostly immigrants from India and Bangladesh who come to do hard labor. Just to put it in perspective, when the Olympics were on in London, only one person died in the construction of those massive structures. And it seems to me that the preciousness of life is not a given everywhere you go. But it is a given when you believe what I articulated at the beginning. The Christian view that life is precious and that human life particularly has a dignity because we are made in the image of God. And previous generations of Christians in this nation are to be thanked for the good that we live in today. I think about so many things. Child labor laws were pioneered by Christians who understood the preciousness of life, 
men like Lord Shaftesbury. Hospitals built by Christians. Before the NHS ever existed, there were hospitals that Christians had founded to look after the sick. Trade unions and the trade union movements were started by Christians because they recognized the preciousness of lives. They wanted some kind of collective protection for workers. And of course, one of the most famous examples of all was the work of those who were against slavery. Men like William Wilberforce. And really, they passed the baton on to us in this generation. What does it mean for us to count life, human life precious in our day and age? I don't know what it means for you, but I, I, I believe that God would want to stimulate some of you to give your life to the kind of causes which the Bible would say are important. And I think about things like sex trafficking. You think about things like abortion. But friends, even then, this doesn't capture the entirety of the weight of this command because there is just yet one more deeper level we need to understand. In the Bible, life is not just about your body and its breath. And death is not just about when your breath ceases and, you, and your body rots. In the Bible, life is knowing God eternally. And death is being separated from him for all eternity. This is why when God said to Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. And they ate the fruit and nothing happened. They didn't die. But they did die. Because God banished them from his presence there and then. And the Bible says that everyone who does not know God is in the same position as Adam and Eve who were banished from the garden. They are in a position of spiritual death. And when you start to read the command through that lens, it brings a sharp focus on, what, on God's passion for life and what that actually means. Murder in the Bible is what Satan has been doing from the beginning. Jesus is the one who calls Satan the murderer in John 8. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. And you ask, well, how does Satan murder? And Jesus makes it clear because he says he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Ever since the beginning of the world, Satan's tactic and his way of bringing about spiritual death has always been through the spreading of lies, and particularly the lies that shed doubt and sow doubt into your mind and heart about the living God and who he is. About the goodness of God, actually. and About whether God has your best interests in mind. That was the same lie that he planted in Adam and Eve's minds, which led to them eating the fruit, and it's the same lie which lies behind every time you turn away from God and sin. Satan tells you God isn't good. The good that you need is not from him. It's by grabbing this thing or that thing. And so he sows destruction and separation from God in our lives. But it is into this that, that the meaning of what it means to propagate and champion the cause of life in the world becomes clear. To pursue life is to understand that our calling here primarily is to be those who bear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the means by which people come to experience the life of God for themselves. Amen. If God's ultimate solution to the death that is rife in, in his creation 
is the giving of his son so that Christ's death could atone for our sins and allow us to experience his forgiveness, then friend, there is nothing more important that you can do with your life than to be a carrier of that message and the spreader of life to the world in which we live. I think that's the ultimate force of the command that we've been thinking about today. And you might look at yourself and think, well, I am extraordinarily useless and weak, and I feel it too. But I take comfort that even Paul felt that way. Let me read to you a section from 2 Corinthians. He says, we have this treasure. He means this life, this living message inside us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We are very weak vessels, he says. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Stricken down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be shown in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And in essence, what Paul was talking about was the extraordinary and heroic call to be a person who lays down your life so that you can spread the life of God in the world. And so much of this world is geared to to tell us that no life is about you meeting your own desires and achieving your own dreams and ambitions and living a fulfilled existence. The whole world exists around you and the world is your oyster. The Bible tells you the very opposite thing. It says that God has given you the gift of life so that you can lay your life down and spread the life of Christ into the world. The image in my mind as I was thinking about this was of Desmond Doss. who Some of you will have seen uh, portrayed on film recently. He was a pacifist, Seventh-day Adventist, conscientious objector in the Second World War. A Christian who did not believe in killing in any way, in any form. And Desmond Doss still joined the army. And he was sent to the Pacific to go and fight, or at least to be part of the cause there. But he decided he would be a medic and dedicate himself to saving lives. And you may have seen the story of Hacksaw Ridge, a true story, in which Desmond Doss was stayed up on the top of a 400-foot cliff when everyone else beat a retreat and climbed down the cliff because his fallen comrades were all around him and spent the whole night creeping around hearing the groans of of fellow American soldiers and dragging them to the edge of the cliff and then constructing a pulley to lower them down to safety at the bottom. And in that night, in in that heroic effort under the shot of machine gun fire, he estimates that he saved 50 lives in a single night. His fellow soldiers said it was 100. So they settled on 75, somewhere in the middle. And every time he plucked a life from the mud and saved a life, he prayed to God, Lord, please help me get one more. Lord, please help me get one more. And I think he's an extraordinary image of what it means to live a life of purpose with the gospel as a Christian. Lord, please help me get one more. Because the life of God is available. As I close, I want to, we're going to respond to God in worship and also take communion.
And I want to speak to you on a couple of levels. I think there are those of you in here who recognize that God has brought you some kind of conviction of the weight of your own sin, that you've, you've, you've done wrong, and you need to ask God for forgiveness, and I encourage you to do that. It's available to you immediately. But for most of us, I think God will want to impress on us again the preciousness of life in his eyes. And particularly give you a sense of renewed purpose, of why we, why we are alive and what we are here to do and what his heart is for your fellow humans. Will you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. Father God, we want to begin by acknowledging that there is something very holy about life. Particularly the life that you breathe into humanity, which is called spirit, which is called breath, which is the image of God in us. And that even if we don't look like much, there is something awesome about every person in this room. And even as our bodies waste away, there is something of inestimable value in a human life. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we, we get caught up with things which are actually of very little value in the grand scheme of things. And forget, Lord, that our greatest calling is to pursue life, to spread life, We pray, Lord, that as we take communion now, you would come and minister your grace and forgiveness to every heart. I pray, Lord, that you would touch those who who recognize a guiltiness in their own heart. May they experience and taste your forgiveness in a new way today. But Lord, also move towards all of us with a sense of the preciousness of your shed blood and your broken body. That it the clearest statement of how much you love people. So that, Lord, we will never regard other people in a cheap way. I pray that the weight of this would sink on our hearts afresh. And that, Lord, with you, we'll say just one more, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.